Hello, and welcome to another edition of Blue Marble Podcast. I'm your host, Rev Charbert. Thanks for tuning in. Today, my special guest is Dr. Theo Lacane. He's an organizer with the Center for Biological Diversity's Climate Law Institute, where he works to protect communities and our climate from fossil fuels. He builds grassroots power. He trains youth and grassroots leaders to end approvals for new oil drilling. He's helped lead successful campaigns to divest two universities from fossil fuels. He earned his doctorate in global studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he also taught classes on climate justice, activism, and radical social change. This is a national audience, so our discussion is a universal look today at how climate change is impacting biological diversity. What do we need to know about that? And what can we do to help? I can't imagine anyone better to talk to about this than Theo. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, why don't we kick it off by just tell us a little bit about your backstory, if you like, you know, the kind of stuff you'd want an audience of nature lovers to know about you. Well, my life has always been infused with an understanding of the climate crisis and the ecological crisis as being profoundly political crises rooted in questions of power and social justice. And this is really because my of my upbringing. Uh, my mother was the United Kingdom's first and only uh, member of parliament for the Green Party. And mm. my dad was an English teacher. And together, these brought home to me the importance of story and empathy and combining that with a searing critique of the systems of domination that we live under today. Mm-hmm. So these, mm-hmm. my backstory is really one of being politicized since I was a baby. <laughs> um, I'm originally well, you're from... in good company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You um, were saying originally? Originally, I'm from the United Kingdom. I grew mm-hmm. up in Belgium, where I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. And then I came to the United States on an exchange program at university. I fell in love with California and decided to stay. Um, so mm-hmm. that's uh, graduate school was the easiest way of getting back to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's wonderful. And I love what you're saying too about the power of story and finding those concentric circles of connecting our personal story, often with family story, with stories of a people, with eco story, with sacred story. That's been a lot of my life's work as well. And uh, so it's very interesting that that's a part of your background. Yeah. Um, and- mm-hmm. I was just going to add that, yeah, these early influences um, growing up in a very politically active family, but also going to this kind of international school for, you know, the international business elite, the students of this business elite class, where Mm. my peers espoused a very different political outlook to the one that I had at home. It was something that really taught me about the importance of being able to communicate your political values and views in a way that could connect with other people without surrendering Ah. your values. And so I think that's something that was a very important skill for an organizer that I was able to develop very early on. 
Yeah, no, that really is. And I, I can't tell you how often I hear people um, in conversations that people who want to be involved with activism, you know, wrestling with that very issue. How do I speak truth without surrendering what I believe in and care about my moral compass, but also in a way that can be heard and really communicate to others who may not share that at all? Um, yeah. So how did you get involved with environmental organizing? Certainly through my parents and my background, as I've already sort of explained that, that trajectory, but I actually got quite disillusioned with environmental organizing and climate politics in mm. high school. Um, mm. In some, for so, partly deciding that at that time, the environmental movement was just incapable of communicating beyond a kind of a small clique of activists who already agreed with us and uh, finding mm. that uh, movements for social justice and human rights were much more effective in some ways at, at communicating. And so I got more involved in those um, mm. than the environmental movement. And that only actually changed when I went on this exchange program at uh, UC Santa Barbara, um, where I took a class called Earth in Crisis. Mm. And this class really provided me with a lens through which to understand the ecological crisis, the extinction crisis, the climate crisis, the crisis in inequality, the crisis in our democracy as all being deeply and inextricably intertwined. And so through that lens, I came to understand that social justice and environmental justice and the climate crisis are all part of the same um, problems and, and require a, 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 a intersectional solutions. Um, and through that class, that actually is what brought me back into the climate movement or what I should actually call the climate justice movement. Um, and at that exact same time, the fossil fuel divestment campaign was getting started up at the University of California. Uh, this was a campaign that was inspired by the anti-apartheid campaigns of the decades earlier. Um, oh. And it was intended to get institutions like universities to divest or to take their investments out of uh, the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and this act of divestment was about making, sharing a story. It was storytelling. It was about uh, making a point about the moral bankruptcy of these companies that have spread delay and denial and doubt about climate change for so long and to change um, the story that we told about climate change. So less of one about pointing the finger inwards and being and saying, this is individual's fault and, and I'm to blame and I really should just be, um, you know, living under a rock somewhere and, and I shouldn't do anything that's going to, uh, you know, increase emissions and instead point the finger at the fossil fuel industry, which is responsible for the vast amount of emissions um, eh, across the globe and that did so much to prevent action on climate change early on. So um, it was really this uh, ability in, in gaining that lens through that class earth in crisis and then being able to act on it um, through the fossil fuel divestment campaign that provided this kind of expression of the political and strategic outlook that I had been kind of really looking for. And so the divestment campaign provided that to me. Um, and, and so I've been an organizer, using that term, uh, an organizer ever since um, joining the fossil fuel divestment campaign. Oh, that is so fascinating that there's so much there. I just, I love the message that you reinforce about the intersectionality of this movement today. I, I know about 2017, 2018, when I jumped with all four feet into the climate and climate justice movement or the people's climate movement, it was, that was kind of the rubric at the time. Um, it, it had expanded to really appreciate the intersectionality of which you speak so that um, 
you know, when I hear people saying, well, I, I really can't help with the climate right now. I'm, I'm busy over here doing um, human rights or, I'm, you know, I'm doing women's rights or LGBTQ rights or I'm working uh, uh, on uh, abortion campaigns or pro I'm thinking, you know, this is all part. Right. This is all part of the big issue. The other thing I love that you really point out that I think is so important uh, for our listeners to hear, because I'm familiar with who some of them are. Um, is this idea that yes, personal change, personal responsibility is uh, that's a moral choice you can make always, but um, the real task is holding accountable the actual polluters who have been plundering, extracting, manufacturing, creating the problem, and who for decades have been lying to us, deceiving us, so that they can continue their activity with you know no accountability whatsoever. Yeah, those are very strong messages. So through all of that organizing work, what brought you to the Center for Biological Diversity and the Climate Law Institute in particular? So through the divestment campaign, I was exposed to these other struggles for climate justice. And I think in a more intersectional lens, kind of seeing how the fossil fuel industry um, perpetuates forms of systemic oppression. Um, one example that really um, was formative for me was seeing the police uh, deployed at Standing Rock, uh, at the oh, uprising yeah. of Standing Rock in 2016 against the Indigenous-led movement to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline going through um, the Standing Rock Sioux, uh, just above the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and their ancestral yeah. lands. Yeah. Um, and seeing that this is not just, it is about the climate, but it's also about um, uh, people's freedom um, and about uh, indigenous people's sovereignty and about um, fighting environmental racism. And so out of the divestment campaign, I then wanted to get more involved in uh, work to take on the fossil fuel industry directly. So uh, in Santa Barbara, there was a proposal to drill uh, 750 new oil wells in the county that I was living in. And so I got very involved in the fight to stop that project. And through that fight, came into contact with the Center for Biological Diversity, who was doing some work in the area as well. Um, although they were, I think, more focused on another uh, oil extraction issue around the uh, Exxon's uh, uh, bid to try and rebuild a um, pipeline to transport oil from its offshore wells. Um, but we came into contact and I was very impressed with the organizers that I met from the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, they're so hardworking and smart and strategic. And so they were people that I looked at and I wanna be like them. Um, and so uh, when I finished graduate school, I'd always intended to kind of use what I was learning there to, to get into the, the movement more permanently uh, or more, um, uh, yeah, real professional role within it. In a it, more yeah. professional way, um, and um, and I was impressed by the organization's ability to kind of bring together legal intervention and, and social movement building and creative and sometimes disruptive action and savvy media and storytelling mm -hmm. with its unapologetic and uncompromising positions that are always driven by science and justice. And so that for me was really important. Uh, is that it wasn't joining uh, a big green NGO that was going to compromise my values, but our values were aligned and it had this real strategic outlook and diversity of tactics that it understood that we need to address these multiple crises. And, and so I was very excited 
to um, get involved in an organization like that and to do it in California, um, which is at the leading edge of helping to phase out fossil fuels. Well, you know, I didn't know all that about the Center for Biological Diversity. That's wonderful. It provided you with such great role models uh, for what you're doing. And I, I really like what you're saying about um, an organization that's uh, very savvy, but also very um, uh, smart about the variety of tactics that we need to deploy because there's, it, it, we're in some climate wars. We're in some climate justice wars, and like many wars, there are many, many, many battlefronts and many kinds of logistics and strategies that one must use. Um, there isn't just one way to go at it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for our listeners who may not know exactly, um, wh what do you have to say about the connection between climate change and biodiversity or biological diversity? Are they, well, we've been saying they're kind of one of the same crisis, but but how? I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I asked that because people say there's a climate crisis and there's mm -hmm. the biodiversity crisis. Are they the same thing? I think the climate crisis and what we might rightly call the extinction crisis are dual crises mm -hmm. that are inextricably intertwined. I think mm -hmm. it might be helpful to pass out the differences between them because they are there are differences, but they are also entwined in a way that we, on an everyday basis, we might not see those differences. Mm. Um, they are linked, I think, both in the fundamental driving forces behind them, which is namely the extractive economy that we live in, oriented around endless pursuit of resources to make a small group of rich people much richer. Um, but I think they're also linked in terms of their solutions, which is namely transitioning away from an extractive economy towards a regenerative one, a just one, one that works for everybody and that protects the ecosystems upon which all of life, and I mean all of life on Earth, depends. Um, and so, yeah, that sounds quite lofty and theoretical. So to ground that in something more practical, right now, the single greatest threat to all life on Earth, human and more than human, is the climate emergency. Um, and what that climate emergency requires is urgent action to phase out fossil fuels. Um, this is needed in order to preserve any hope of limiting global warming below 1.5 degrees, which is the globally agreed upon threshold um, of warming uh, that we're trying to limit warming to. Now, fossil fuels account for about 90% of greenhouse gas emissions, and there are about 10 times more fossil fuels in existing oil, coal, and gas reserves than we can burn and maintain a relatively stable climate. Those numbers to me were what really, one of the things that really drew me back into this movement, 10 yeah. times more fossil fuels in existing reserves than we can afford to burn and maintain yeah. a stable climate. Yeah. So this points to that urgent necessity of rapidly ending fossil fuel production. But at the same time, Experts are estimating that a global warming increase of about two degrees would threaten or drive to extinction about 25% of species on Earth right now. Mm, That's mm. in addition to those that are already being driven to extinction by other factors. Mm. Now, with existing climate policies in place, we are looking at being currently on track uh, of at least 3.2 degrees warming. So we're looking uh, at right. mass extinction events um in because of the climate crisis combined with these other drivers of um extinction 
Um, these other drivers might be habitat loss and degradation, exploitation and changing land use, pollution, invasive species. These are mm. all parts of leading into the extinction crisis. And they all kind of, again, are back rooted in this system of extraction, this yeah. economy of extraction that is both what the fossil fuel industry thrives upon and fuels um, and is also leading to this destruction of wild places and, and, and wild things. So much, um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, it seems like so much rootedness in the modern industrialized age, where we really sort of took a turn that way and became extractive. And on the planet right now, we've got earth wisdom, we've got indigenous traditions that never really bought that and that have fought that and have a lot of earth wisdom to counteract that. Um we have a lot of listeners here who appreciate the intersectionality of this is that um, uh, dealing with that extractive economy, dealing with any form of authoritarianism that's combined with that is uh, is absolutely lethal. And just recently at the Parliament of the World Religions, which was the, the genesis of the, the modern interfaith movement, um, it's about 130 years old. It celebrated a really big convention in uh, Chicago this year. And it represented 210 interfaith, spiritual paths, religions, uh, humanist um, philosophies that were standing united against the two biggest threats to humankind, they said, on the planet today, authoritarianism and the climate crisis. Mm. Not really talking about other species except through the rights of nature movement, which mm. was pretty cool, and indigenous leaders as well. And um, our own nature-based network, which uh, you know reveres the sanctity of all life and the web of life. So I digress. But did you have did you have more to say about the difference in the comparison between I like what you say the extinction crisis and the climate crisis? Was there more you wanted to say about that? The point that I really want to drive home there is that they are driven by similar sources uh, forces. And that in order to resolve both crises, we have to think of them as being intertwined and that our solutions to the climate crisis cannot be ones that um, perpetuate the extinction crisis. An example mm. of that might be um, massive sprawling development of um, uh, a lithium mine that uh, for batteries and, and for making the kind of transition that we absolutely need to make mm. um, away from fossil fuels, but these it still is resource extractive. Um, mm. So this is an example that I think we, when we think about climate change, we do also need to be thinking about are the solutions going to drive us further into the extinction crisis or are they going to help us bring us back from the brink of that? And we need mm -hmm. to be focusing on the solutions that do the latter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, my understanding is that when faced with threats, species can either prevent them or they can mitigate them or simply adapt to them. And I'm I'm hearing, you know, when you talk about solutions, how how might our own attempts to prevent, mitigate, and adapt to global warming that's impacting other species' ability to mitigate or adapt to this crisis? I mean, how, how do we not undermine their ability to to mitigate or adapt at this point? I don't know if we can prevent at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got to be so careful about the solutions that we put forward. Um, 
in response to the climate crisis and ensure that they don't simply replicate those systems of domination, of exploitation of people and, and resources and species um, that got us into this mess in the first place. We've got to understand the systems that got us into this mess in the first place in order to avoid mm. them in our solutions. So that's one mm -hmm. thing is that that education and that learning and that, um, that knowledge of, of what got us here. Um, and just to mm. give a, an example, if our solution to the climate crisis is to tear down natural habitat that protects ecosystems so that we can mine the resources that we need for solar panels and batteries and site transmission lines, then what we're really doing is just compounding the extinction crisis and degrading the ecosystems that all of us depend on. So it might seem like a solution, but it's not a long-term one and it is one that is going to compound our problems rather than actually resolve them. So if we're talking about um, mitigating the climate crisis, we have to do so in a way that does not continue to unravel the fabric of life on Earth um, mm -hmm, that makes mm -hmm. our own existence possible. Uh, we haven't solved the problem if we do that. We just kick the can down the road. So instead, we need to be talking about developing solutions that protect and restore communities, biodiversity, and our climate. Um, that means solutions that protect lands and waters that sequester carbon. Um, while restoring key areas for biodiversity um, and natural carbon sequestration. So that's one way that we can think about by protecting biodiversity as also protecting our climate. These solutions that um, bring us back from the brink of the extinction crisis can also be ones that help us protect our climate. Is that sort of along the lines of, of some of the theory of like 30% of the earth, just, just leave it there, don't develop it? restore, regenerate, you know, and, and trust that a lot of the ecosystems, if restored, can really do a lot of this work? Is that, is that kind of fit in to a, a, yeah, the so kind the, of vision you're talking about? I mean, I think it's called the 30 by 30 movement, trying to protect 30% of land or conserve 30% of land by 2030. And I think it does fit in. I think something to say about this is also that it must be done in close collaboration with and with the free and prior and informed consent of indigenous peoples who live yes. and have worked on that land for generations. Um, yes. And it can't simply be uh, a process of forcing them off their lands in order to supposedly protect it, because that's not going to work. They know how to live on those lands, and they have been doing so for time immemorial. Uh, and there's a, a huge amount to be learned in terms of our guiding our ways into the future uh, from those communities rather than kicking them off their land. Time for a lot of cultural humility and really yeah. coming back to the table and learning that earth wisdom from people who never lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think about, and I mean, a lot of us, when we're listening for the first time, this is September of 2023. And, you know, we, we just are listening to one disaster after another, after another hurricanes. We just had the, one of the worst fires, uh, certainly, um, in in any part of Polynesia, um, many say in the U.S. Uh, happened on Maui, just absolutely colossal devastation. Um, and every time we hear about the climate crisis in the news, I applaud the news. Um, my journalism colleagues, you know, for for getting up there and talking about it more and more and more and naming why it's happening. But reporters focus on damage done to people, damage done to property. We're measuring it in terms of numbers of homes lost or numbers of human lives. Meanwhile, I'm always thinking, well, what about all the other species 
literally plant and animal that can't get out of harm's way that are being destroyed. They can't go inside and turn on the air conditioner. They can't um, escape. So what happens to the integrity of an ecosystem when individual species get threatened like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to caution slightly against uh, a thinking where we uh, suggest which should get more coverage, people or wildlife ecosystems or the places that we live um mm. i think what we've actually got to be got better what we've actually got to get better at doing is communicating mm. the inherent value of both and yeah. so before i joined the center for biological diversity actually one of my great frustrations with the environmental movement was why are we only talking about polar bears and not people so to flip mm. that on its head <laughs> surely if we want to get people to care about this crisis then we need to talk about people more than mm. polar bears now, my view after joining this organization is actually quite a bit more nuanced. And, and I think that we've actually got to be talking and communicating in ways um, where we're understanding that we are absolutely dependent on one another. On, mm. And, and our, our civilization depends upon these ecosystems. And also right now, these species are depending on us not to screw things up so much that we um, that the worst consequences of climate change come to pass. So I want to, uh, to mm. just start with a caution there about thinking of people and wildlife as being in relationship with one another always. Uh, and that uh, we, we shouldn't be trying to choose which one we focus on and which one we don't. Um, but in answer uh, to your question, what happens to the, uh, when a species, let's say a keystone species um, in an ecosystem uh, is lost? What happens to the integrity of that, that uh, ecosystem? Well, keystone species, they play a vital role in the overall health and sustainability of an ecosystem, when that gets wiped out, we can often see this cascading effect on the entirety of the rest of the ecosystem, sometimes to the extent that the entire system collapses. And, and, and we kind of see this on a macro scale also with like feedback loops in, in the climate crisis. Well, in the extinction crisis, you have these feedback loops where you lose a key predator um, and, and the consequences are such that uh, the entirety of the, um, the, the network, this interconnected network of life collapses. So ecosystems hardly needs to, seems obvious to state, incredibly complex webs of life that mm -hmm. all of us depend upon. And this is why I think it's so important that every species is valued for its inher inherent worth. Um, mm -hmm. And that you can't put a price on, on one species over another. Um, they each form part of this interconnected web. And when one is removed, it has consequences sometimes that we don't even know about. Um, mm -hmm. that reverberate throughout that ecosystem. And so when the climate crisis comes in and destroys habitat that a, a key um, member of an ecosystem depends upon, then it will also see the rest of that um, uh, ecosystem uh, collapse and fail. And, and so this is uh, another way that we see the extinction crisis and the climate crisis as interlinked. Mm. You know, Jane Goodall always has done a very good job of of pointing out of what you speak, um, talking about the need to to view solutions in terms of people, humans uh, other than human, and also the uh, the earth and communities themselves, and see that as a an interdependent whole going forward. I was just listening today on NPR to a great Lakota chief um, who was mm -hmm. referring to the land as our relative. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the protection of the land was not protection of resources. It was not like we are doing stewardship. That, that kind of language isn't even in the thinking. It's that the land itself is our relative. We are kin with mm -hmm. this place. We are kin with all the other living species that are in this place. We've always been here. We are people of this place, like all the other kin are, and we must uh, help to preserve that. I just thought it's just so beautiful and very different than the modern extractive uh, worldview story. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is the most important thing that people can be doing right now? I realize for all of our listeners that in order to have rigorous honesty about what's happening, that can seem like a bummer. It can seem like it's really hard to take. It takes courage yeah. to look at it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. But if we're going to change the trajectory at all, which is what we hope to do, you know, we have to be rigorously honest. We have to understand the reality of what's happening. And then not stopping there, we try to move to understanding that there are some solutions and that we have time to do some proactive things. So what do you think are some of the most important things people can be doing right now to protect the web of life from global warming? So the single most important thing people can do right this moment is join the march to end fossil fuels in New York City on September 17th and demand that President Biden end the expansion of fossil fuel projects and declare a climate emergency. So if you, your listeners, are anywhere in the New York region, get out into the streets on September 17th and join that march. Thousands of people are going to be taking action in the streets of New York City on September 17th. It's going to be called the March to End Fossil Fuels, and it's really going to center this climate solution at the forefront of our climate politics heading into 2024. So that's kind of one uh -huh. thing you can do. <laughs> yeah, and it's fun. They're and they're great. Fun. They're going and to be marches all over the place. You can find one. What's the name of the march again? The March to End Fossil Fuels. Right. So there are going to be other marches in other places around the country. Look that up. And because this broadcast is going to uh, broadcast live just before that. Find a march near you. Go join a movement. Get energized. So that's one thing. It's a one-off I also want to talk about longer term. What does this movement need? What does our movement need? Mm -hmm. Well, it needs every single one of us, every single one of you. Um, and it needs us to get involved however we can. And I mean that actually quite seriously in terms of however we can, because you don't have to be an activist with a bullhorn on the streets to be involved. You don't mm -hmm. have to be someone who's writing letters to elected officials or going to lobby meetings with them. We need artists in this movement. We need cooks in this movement. We need builders and engineers and teachers, everyone who has a skill that they can offer, a story that they can tell, or just a body to be in the streets. That's what we need. We need every single one of us to be in this movement to make the change and demand the change that we need right now. So that's what I would say is find an organization that does some of this work near you and offer your specific skill set or just your knowledge or just your time. That's what we need. So please, if this you feel moved by anything that we've talked about today find an organization get organized and share what you have to offer i i love that and i've always uh, agreed with um the, the statement that the the best antidote to feeling uh any kind of despair or depressed is to get out join others and do something 
you know, action, action, action. Um, that's what defines hope. And um, I love how you encourage people to to bring what they do best and what they love to do uh, to uh, an effort that's near them or something that you can join and participate in because we need everybody. We need everybody and we need everything. It's like all hands on deck, but it can be a lot of fun also doing it. So um, there's a there's a a lot of gaslighting going on. And what can, I think, also prevent people from jumping in is that a lot of people have been, been believing a lot of disinformation for a lot of decades. And the gaslighting is still going on. Gaslighting, that, what, what is the gaslighting you've been seeing from the fossil fuel industry mm. in particular? And what should we look out for so that we are not fooled or mm. deceived anymore? Yeah. Well, the fossil fuel industry has been spreading doubt and denial about climate change for decades in order to obstruct climate policies that would help get us off fossil fuels. Um, this is very well documented. Uh, I'd recommend Naomi Oreski's book, Merchants of Doubt, for a deeper dive on all of the nefarious ways that these companies have worked to obstruct climate policy and, in fact, learned from the tobacco industry and some of their dirty playbook. Um, mm -hmm. Just to give some examples, they, they intentionally have built networks of front groups and media representatives and politicians to discredit climate science and scientists, to politicize and polarize the climate crisis, to make it part of our culture wars. And they do all of this so that they can kill climate policy that would threaten their bottom line and their profits. Right. And we are living with the consequences of what I think those are truly unforgivable actions. We're living mm -hmm. with those consequences today. Mm -hmm. But as the crisis has gotten harder and harder to deny, the industry is now moving into a phase called delay and distraction. Uh -huh. And examples of these, of these tactics of delay and distraction include false solutions like um, what fossil fuel industry lobbyists call carbon capture storage, but I think oh, yeah. it's better called carbon waste dumping because that's what it is. It it's, is. It's taking... Uh, carbon and uh, from uh, smokestacks and from uh, extraction sites, um, uh, compressing it uh, and then storing it underground. But when you compress uh, carbon dioxide and move it through pipelines and those pipelines leak, you can have all sorts of incredibly dangerous health consequences. Um, and this is not a, um, a solution, but rather a very savvy greenwashing tactic that the industry mm -hmm. uses to try and maintain uh, its ability to extract and burn fossil fuels. So it's also super expensive and it's only a tiny, 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 tiny bit of drawdown. Yeah. So it's very deceptive. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um, extremely expensive. It's a distraction. It delays real climate solutions and it also moves uh, investment away from real climate solutions like clean renewable energy and instead sees millions or if not billions of dollars of public money invested in um, this extremely expensive uh, process that I don't think there's a single example where it's been proven to work at scale. So these are the kind of things to look out for. Um, these uh, false solutions that, that delay and distract us from, from the real solutions that move us away from fossil fuels. Well, let's kind of Let's think about those those real solutions then. I mean, um, that's really a cause for hope. And 
there are real solutions that uh, are available. I mean, I just think about if, if we stopped subsidizing fossil fuels and even diverted that money into research and development on clean, green energy, what an explosion we could have with that. Um, that's just a fantasy of mine. But, you know, what hope do you see for our being able to mitigate the worst climate impacts? And it's not a fantasy. There is real uh progress being made to end fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, and that work needs to continue because it can be divest, di diverted into solutions like uh, empowering communities to put um, solar panels on their own roofs and to have control over their own energy production. Um, also things that seem less exciting like energy efficiency and you know making sure that your homes aren't losing huge amounts of, of energy. Um, these mm -hmm. are kind of less exciting, but also incredibly important parts of um, the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And there is no silver bullet. There is no, there's not going to be one single solution. Um, but I really do see democratizing our energy system, bringing it closer to home as being a critical part of that puzzle um, and, and giving people control over, um, over the source of energy that they use uh, and making sure that it is clean and renewable and doesn't pollute their neighborhoods. Um, th this is a win-win-win. And so unlocking investment in those kind of solutions mm -hmm. is very, very achievable. And we just need the power behind those demands to make it happen. So that's one um, way that I think of solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you asked about hope, and I think you've got to have hope to do this work. Otherwise, it's just impossible. So that's you know, the solutions are what give me hope, the kind of giving back control to people to make decisions over their own lives rather than these mega corporations. That gives me hope because it is part of the solution. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's so important that people remember that it is still possible, although the window is fast closing, to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees mm -hmm. if governments take immediate and unprecedented action on climate change to limit fossil fuels right now. So it can mm -hmm. still be done. And I want to really impress that upon your audience as well, because mm -hmm. uh, so often we hear that it's too late. It is mm -hmm. not yet too late to protect mm -hmm. so much of what we love and what we need to protect. So I see hope in that. I also see hope in the millions of people who are coming together to demand change where governments and corporations yeah. have failed. That's where radical progressive change has come from time and time again throughout history. They, mm -hmm. These social movements are what have given us incredible victories against un seemingly unsurmountable odds. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the apartheid movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the mm -hmm. uh, universal suffrage, mm -hmm. uh, the list goes on. Um, LGBTQ mm -hmm. um, rights, social movements won those victories. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if we are going to have any chance of limiting global temperatures to 1.5 degrees, of taking on the fossil fuel industry, which is one of the most powerful industries on earth, of protecting communities from their pollution, then we're gonna need the biggest, boldest, most exciting, most joyful, most interesting, most diverse social movement that history's ever seen. And that's what I hope people will be building together and that I believe we will be building together. Um, and finally, on the subject of hope, I think it's always helpful to go back to some of uh, Rebecca Solnit's writing uh, she says that hope isn't a lottery ticket that you clutch onto feeling lucky. It's an axe that you use to break down doors with. And this is because <laughs> hope isn't something that you have. It's something mm -hmm. that you do. To hope mm -hmm. is a verb. So hope comes from action 
And as you said, action is the antidote to despair. So that is where I get my hope is by taking action. Well, everything you say, the through line I hear with all of that is that it also comes down to the power of the people. So when we talk about how uh, the people's climate movement is interdependent with protecting democracy, Parliament of the World Religion, climate crisis, um, authoritarianism being the biggest threats. It it requires, you said the word democratization, protecting democracy, because it's our ability to protest. It's our ability to do civil disobedience. It's our ability to take legislative action. It's our ability to speak truth to power. It's our ability to vote with our dollars, with our currencies, with our um, voices in every way at the ballot box. And any effort on the part of corporations or lobbyists or any governments in league with any of those things that are trying to strip away our rights and our ability to do that is clamping down on the power of the people to choose what kind of a future we really want to have. So um, I hear that running through. And one of the things that gives me great hope are incredibly smart, savvy, committed young adult organizers like yourself who are uh, joining uh, a lot of us who've kind of been doing this stuff for a lot of uh, years and are just so energized by the new ranks of people coming on in. And I'm hoping that we can see a lot of generational solidarity as we move forward with this movement you described. So you give me hope. You give me uh, hope because you're here too. All right. And I hope that listeners out there understand that you are, I don't care who you are, you are an important part of this movement and this movement needs you. It needs you. It needs what you've got to offer. Have there been any signs you can think of, of gosh, restoration or regeneration of species that are giving you hope? that can give us hope? And can these, if you think of any, can these be a blueprint for what we need to be doing everywhere? Yes. I mean, there's so many examples, many, many examples to show that when we have laws protecting species, we can hold extinction at bay and that we can create the space for those species to make a comeback. We talked about the, the change that social movements have made. One of those was bringing about the, the Endangered Species Act. And through that act, Though it's been subject to constant attack, mm -hmm. it has been critical to preventing species from going extinct. Mm -hmm. And we need to see this kind of law strengthened to ensure that not only are uh, endangered species getting the protections that they need, but they are also able to bounce back and thrive again. Because when they're given those space, when they're given those protections, they do thrive. So the message of hope here, I think, is, is that it is not too late and that we can bring species including ourselves back mm. from the brink of extinction if we're smart and strategic and savvy mm -hmm. does that does that include in your mind too like the global rights of nature movement where you know people are more and more establishing that a river has rights or a mountain has rights or an ecosystem has rights uh, it's a new sort of jurisprudence that's got a that's setting new precedents in in ways that i find really compelling have you seen anything positive coming out of that, or is that something you're tracking at all? Something, yes, and very excited to see where it goes. I think it's so, it's still quite young in its um, mm -hmm. formation, and so very excited to see um, the ways in which that can be used, um, and if it can be used to hold extinction at bay, to prevent uh, mega corporations from from extracting and, and endangering uh, species. 
Um, but something else that I would also say is that in many ways, we have many of the strongest laws on the books. We just need to enforce them. Uh, and, ah. and so often they don't get enforced. And mm -hmm. so we need to be getting people in office who will commit to enforce them, getting them is boring, but getting them into those regulatory agencies. Those are the sorts of things that we also need to be looking at. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, the call for a lot of us is, is cutting through the greenwashing, not being deceived, holding, holding influencers accountable, whether they're bureaucrats who need to do their job or politicians who really mm -hmm. need to be representing um, uh, what's in the best interests of life and not just the bottom line, right? Yeah, it sounds really simplistic, but it's not. I mean, it it's so clear that this is what undergirds the entire movement and this point that we we're mm -hmm. at right now yeah um so on the message of hope or action or or anything else is there anything else that you'd want to add that you'd want to say to our listening audience about this whole topic before we conclude i'll just come back to the role that elected officials and particularly people like president biden can play here mm. president biden committed to ending fossil fuel extraction on public federal lands mm -hmm. and has unfortunately taken us in the wrong direction. Mm. He has uh, permitted more fossil fuel production on those lands than did President Trump. Mm -hmm. And so we really need our movement to be holding uh, President Biden accountable for that. And we've seen that when we do raise our voices that uh, he can be moved. Just today, he announced that uh, seven massive leases in uh, Alaska uh, would be cancelled for the oil industry. So that's right. this is coming just two weeks before the march to end fossil fuels. I don't think that's a coincidence. And we need to be pushing him to go further and to cancel things like the Willow Project as well. Yeah. And, and you, you raised a good point in those two presidencies is that we need to get politics out of the climate crisis. This is an existential crisis. This should not be politically weaponized anymore because across the board we need to hold all all legislators politicians influencers accountable yeah and it works it works when we do that's really i saw that today i was excited i was like oh, okay some pushback and he's responding so yeah anything else i think that's it for me Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I hope, I hope listeners, you, uh, I, I really want to lift up, um, check out the Center for Biological Diversity. Absolutely a really wonderful organization to consider being involved with. Um, and thank you again, Theo, so much for joining me and helping to shed some more light and um, uh, insights into this aspect of the climate movement. That wraps up this installment of Blue Marble Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you value what you've heard here today, please share this information with others. New Blue Marble Podcasts air live on the third Friday of every month, and they're available for listening anytime thereafter through our channel on Blog Talk Radio. Go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash CSNP. Search for Blue Marble with Rev Charbert and you'll find the archive of these podcasts. You can click on any you want to hear or download for later listening. You can also follow our podcasts on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash CSN podcasts. 
there's a complete archive of hundreds of programs by all of our excellent podcasters on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org under the CSNP tab. So try to get to that March somewhere near you, September 17th, New York, and check it out. End fossil fuel era. Until next time, this is Charbert signing off. Thank you for all the good you do. Stay true and blue. And hey, hope to see you in the green space.